Good morning. Um, I want to take you back this morning to March, April, and May of 2020. All right, the beginning of what we now call the COVID-19 pandemic. What did your Sunday mornings look like during those months? Did you sleep in? Did you enjoy the weather with a walk outside? Maybe make a late brunch? Um, Maybe if you're like me, you didn't change out of your pajamas until mid-afternoon. Hopefully, you turned on the YouTube channel at about 10.50 to see everyone's pictures. Remember those days? Uh, And then to stream the service. And if you were really serious, you would turn it on at 10.30 for the prayer time, led by the elders. Praise God that uh, we're back together and that that's not our reality anymore. But our world has changed quite a bit since then. The pandemic accelerated what was already happening in this country. To show you that, let me read some stats for you this morning. Okay, all of these numbers either come from Gallup, the Pew Research Center, or the Barna Group. Okay, so first, in 1999, 70% of the U.S. adults, okay, so adults in this country belong to a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. And in 2020, for the first time in recorded history for this country, that number dropped to below half of the adult population, to 47%. In 2011, 18% of U.S. adults were not affiliated with any religion. Ten years later, 2021, that number was up to 29%. The summary of these first two stats are something that I don't need to tell you. It's not news to any of us. Our country is becoming more and more secular, and it's happening rather quickly. Next, in 2011, 75% of U.S. adults identified as Christian. And in 2021, only 63% of U.S. adults identified as Christian. And lastly, as of 2021, only 7% of U.S. adults said that they attend a church gathering at least once or twice a month. So think about those last two. 63% of U.S. adults would call themselves Christians, okay? But only 7% of the U.S. adults attend a church gathering on a semi-regular basis, now, I must say that this is just in our country, okay? If you're, if you're following the church globally, you realize that God is moving, right? And the church is growing in places that we wouldn't expect, as Todd mentioned this morning. So praise God for that. But we're not experiencing that here in our country. So what's going on? My personal belief that this is not the pandemic's fault, As I said, the pandemic only revealed what had been happening for years in this country. And I don't share these stats out of fear or to be an alarmist like many do. Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is no disputing that. But we must ask ourselves in this country... Are we a part of Jesus' church? 
or are we trying to build our own and thus failing? How did we get here? How did we go from a place where God was largely revered and Christians were respected decades ago to now God is mocked and Christians are out of touch with reality? If I can say this, I think it primarily comes down to a failure of discipleship, a failure of healthy evangelism, a failure to be the church, and instead settling for doing church once a week. And hear me correctly, I don't think that the problem is out there. And I don't think necessarily the problem is that people are out to get us. And instead, I wonder if the problem is with us as the church. I wonder if we've displayed to our young people and to a watching world that God is essentially a good to be consumed instead of a God to be worshipped, instead of a God to be experienced, to be loved, to be praised, and to be adored. Maybe we believe the lie that, that Sunday morning is primarily about me and what I can get out of it rather than being more concerned about what does God get out of our worship this morning. We have a problem. <clears throat> and I think it's because we've lost sight of the glory and we've lost sight of the goodness of God. We've lost sight of how truly wonderful he is. And we've become so inward focused. And once again, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about us as the church. Maybe we've lost focus as to why we are still here. So this morning, we're going to look at the story of Gideon. We're going to look at the glory and the goodness of God throughout Gideon's life. And let me just say this disclaimer. If you're angry right now, or if you feel like I'm being overly critical or harsh, um, I do think Northfield has gone against the current trend in America. The health of our church has been tested over the past couple years, and while we are not perfect... Okay, all of us can admit that. I think we've shown that God is here and that God is working in this place. However, there is still work to be done. Jesus has not yet returned. So because of that, this morning, I hope to convince you of this. The glory and the goodness of God compels us to go. The glory and the goodness of God compels us to go. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would teach us, that you would lead us and guide us in such a way that our response would be to love you and to love our neighbor as ourself. So Lord, we give you the rest of this time, the rest of our day, and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, we continue our series through the book of Judges today. So please go ahead and open up your Bibles. Uh, Judges chapter 6, it's page 205 in your pew Bible if you want to use that. As mentioned already, today we are talking about Gideon, okay? No, not Gideon, the son of Jacob and Abby. Um, although he is pretty cute, we could stare at him for a while. Maybe more enjoyable than listening to me preach. But Gideon in the Bible, okay, his life is a roller coaster, 
All right, it's full of ups and downs. And so in your notes, if you have a bulletin, I've labeled his life into three parts, okay? The call, the rise, and the fall. And so we'll look at each of them over the next three chapters. So Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. All right, here we go again. Here we see the cycle that we've been talking about starting all over again. Israel sins and then becomes oppressed by Midian. All right, skip down to verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. All right, so Israel sins, they're oppressed. And then they repent, right? They cry out, they've had enough, and they call out to God. The prophet reminds the Israelites who God is. And he also reminds them that they haven't obeyed him faithfully, okay? So look at verse 11. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord sat, or came and sat under the terebinth of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiserite while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Real quick pause. Um, This should be reminding us of Moses' story. Okay, the author is drawing on the Exodus story of Moses. All right, verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Gideon then goes and prepares some food and brings it back to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord takes his staff. He touches the food and fire springs up and consumes the food. And then just like the food, the angel of the Lord vanishes from Gideon's sight. Gideon then realizes that he was in the presence of the angel of the Lord and he thinks he's going to die because he saw him face to face. But God says this to him. He says, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon builds an altar and calls it Yahweh is Shalom. God is peace. In the next section, Gideon destroys the altar of Baal and cuts down the Asherah. Gideon has been called by God. He has risen to the challenge so far. However, we're about to witness a minor setback. 
Okay, so look at verse 36, a story that many of you know. Chapter 6, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, I love this, pushing the limits, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me just test, uh, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Gideon had, uh, God had already told Gideon that he was going to be with him, and Gideon knows this. This is why Gideon says, let not your anger burn against me. Gideon is displaying a lack of faith in what God had already told him. And as I was thinking about this this week, it's so easy to be critical of Gideon in this story. But God reminded me that that I'm Gideon, right? That I have the privilege of living on this side of Jesus' resurrection. I know that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things right, yet I still ask for a sign. I still doubt God at times. I still have a lack of faith in the smallest of circumstances. The good news is that God is more powerful than Gideon's lack of faith and his doubt. And for me, good news, that he's also more powerful than mine. And so after a minor setback for Gideon, he rises again by God's grace. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who laughed, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. 
We learn in the next chapter, chapter 8, the Midianites had an army of 135,000 people. So Gideon's army goes from 32,000 to 300. So it's 135,000 versus 300. God dwindles the number by first removing any man that is fearful and secondly, having the remaining 10,000 drink water. And if the man, the soldier, drinks like a dog, then he will stay. And there's, there's a conversation and there's a debate on why God uses this method. Um, if you're interested, I'll let you go down that rabbit hole yourself this afternoon. But this is the point. The point is it's, it's 135,000 versus 300. I did some math for you. That's 450 Midianites to every one Israelite. Those are not good odds. If the Israelites win, it can only be explained as an act of God. And we know the rest of the story. After Gideon is comforted by a dream, he rallies his troops, divides them into three groups, and then we read this in verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the uh, trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. Side note, they noticed that they weren't even holding their swords. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army Ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Gideon is victorious. God is victorious. They caused the Midianites into a complete panic, and the Midianites defeat themselves. Gideon is back on top. God has proven himself faithful. Up until this point, Gideon has gone back and forth, but he chose to obey God, and God held to his promises. So if you're Gideon, you're probably feeling pretty good. Unfortunately, we know the cycle of the judges. This doesn't last long. Chapter 8. I'm not going to read much in here, but fun fact for you, God is only mentioned by the people speaking in chapter 8. He never actually speaks. In chapters 6 and 7, God speaks and God acts. But in this chapter, he's absent in Gideon's life. I think as the reader, we're led to believe that Gideon is riding the high of victory and now he is working in his own strength and his own power. Obviously, this doesn't go well. He defeats and he kills some more people, but he falls and he falls hard. He replays the golden calf story of Exodus 32. He has all the people throw in their gold and he makes an ephod. And verse 27 of chapter 8 reads this. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Gideon then dies having 70 sons and many wives. This is the call, the rise, and the fall 
of Gideon. Maybe you wish we were talking about Gideon rumbled and not this guy. But I can't help but see the similarities of Gideon in my own life. Not trusting God after I know his promises from scripture. Wanting a sign in a certain situation or wanting to control a certain situation that I have no business controlling. Or maybe most practically, after a moment of complete ecstasy, wanting to once again chase after that feeling and run ahead of God rather than thanking God and enjoying his presence. Can anyone relate? How have you been like Gideon this week? Maybe we need to stop asking God for a sign and instead obey what we already know to be true from his word. Maybe we need to slow down and not run ahead of God like Gideon did in chapter 8 and trust that he has led us thus far and that he will continue to do so. I'm going to say something extremely cliche, so forgive me, but this story isn't about Gideon. And it's not about you, and it's not about me. This story is about God. It's about God's glory, and it's about God's goodness. Let me show you real briefly. Chapter 6 God sends the prophet to Israel, and this is what the prophet says. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. God is good. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He rescued them. Yet we see here from the prophet that Israel is not obeying his voice. Then God's glory is on display when Gideon sees the angel of the Lord face to face just a few verses later. Gideon assumes that he's going to die. This is how glorious our God is. But God responds with something I already read. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. God's glory meets God's goodness. God is real. He's present and he cares for us. Get this. All the while, he is also the most holy being in the entire universe. And at the end of chapter six, God's goodness is on display once again when he is patient with Gideon. Gideon tests God not once but twice, asking for a sign of confirmation, a sign of affirmation, and God appeases his requests. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And then lastly, in chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying this, my own hand has saved me. In the best way possible, God is obsessed with his own glory. He knew the Israelites would take credit unless it was blatantly obvious that they only won 
because of God. And once again, this is me. Thinking that, that I am the reason for the money that I make. That I am the reason for the behavior or lack thereof of my own children. That I am the reason of any sort of ministry success that I've been able to be a part of. Right? It's all about me. It's because of what I can do. But it's not. It's not about my glory. It's not about your glory. It's about God's. So, what does any of this have to do with how I started this message about our current country? About the glory and the goodness of God compels us to go. I wonder if some of us have lost sight of the glory and the goodness of God. I wonder if some of us are like the Israelites or maybe like Gideon, having spiritual amnesia and being so short-sighted. God is glorious and God is good and his glory and his goodness should compel us to go. So where do we go? What do we do? Um, I was emailing back and forth with a friend this week who was helping me process these three chapters and this message. All right, and so with his permission, I just want to read what he wrote in a part of his email. All right, because it's that good. So, quote, The glory and the goodness of God compels us to go. This means that we are not alone. We are empowered by God himself through the working of the Holy Spirit, and we have Jesus as an example to show us how to go. Going includes evangelism. And it also includes caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the outcast, the oppressed, and the least of these. It includes many other things too. Being the salt and the light in the world. By these things we show God's love to a lost world. We become the church by doing these things instead of just doing church for ourselves. Are we trying to build our own church? Or do we want to be God's people to the world? When we see God's glory and goodness, we not only want to share that with others, but we overflow that love and compassion for others. Gideon, on his own, was bound to fail. Gideon still had to do the work, but it was God who did the work through him. And we might be the same way. The Spirit must work through our cowardice and lack of faith, but we nonetheless must make the choice to go. End quote. Church, we are on a mission together. We have been called to go and make disciples of all nations, to go and love and serve the least of these, starting with our own community. Will we accept this calling? Will we accept this mission, or will we sit back and enjoy our comfort and convenience and miss out on what God has for us? There are a few questions in your bulletin to hopefully help you process a response to all of this this week or during lunch if you want to. But <clears throat> to end this morning, uh, I love sports, as many of you know. And I love watching the last game of the season, regardless of the sport, okay, the championship game. And Elizabeth thinks that I'm weird, but I love watching the post-game coverage, 
All right, the night the Cubs won the World Series, I was up for probably three hours afterwards, um, just flipping back and forth. I love, once again weird, but watching grown men celebrate by crying and hugging out of complete joy. And in this post-game coverage, every champion pretty much says the same thing in the interview. Talks about the journey to get to the top, the hard work, the process, and most of the time, some sort of mid-season drama that they had. This team was on a mission together. And when that mission is complete, the sheer joy that is expressed by the winning team is captivating to watch, at least for me. And guess what? We're not that much different. We are on a mission together as a church. We're a team. And so let's say yes to this mission because the reality is a church not on mission together dies together. I believe there's a watching world. I truly believe this. That there's a watching world longing for the church to actually be the church in today's world. And so let's answer the call because the glory and the goodness of God compels us to go. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to close with one song and we're going to celebrate God's glory and his goodness in our lives. So let's pray. God, you are worthy of our worship. You are good and you are glorious and you have called us to go. And this going looks very different for each one of us in here. But Lord, I pray that by the love that you've shown us and by the glory that we are captivated by, that we would go and serve the least of these, that we would go and tell our friends and family who do not yet know you, your gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord, one day in the new heavens and new earth, we will celebrate with you, with your son, with your spirit for all of eternity. And so God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.